Now, um, this morning I'm going to be sharing, um, first of all, a little bit about myself and also a little bit about what God's placed in my heart in terms of a message that I believe is relevant for every one of us, whether we're a doctor, a nurse, health professional, even whether we're a Christian, this is a very important message for, for each of you. Now, just to say a little bit more about myself, as Rob introduced, my name is Henry. I was born and raised in Melbourne. Um, I actually graduated from the University of Melbourne back in 2003 from the medical school. And um, ever since, since, since I graduated, God has placed me on a path. And one of those paths is to um, hopefully soon um, also graduate from the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. Now, the College of Surgeons, I have no doubt that God has worked things in my life to allow me to enter this training program and also work things in my life to hopefully complete the training as well. And um, I have amazing um, testimony and stories about how God has done that, particularly through the issues of the Sabbath. Um, I won't be sharing too much about that today, but hopefully I'll be able to share a personal testimony with you um, soon or one day um, about that. But I want to share with you a little bit about what it's like to be a surgical trainee. And I'm going to start off um, this morning's talk by two examples of what it's like to be a surgical trainee and how that um, has, has influenced the way that I practice and the things that I do. So before I start, I'd just like to get you all to bow your heads together. We'll start off with a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I'd just like to thank you and like to praise you, Lord, that we can be here together, that we can open your word, that we live in a place and that you've um, given us time this morning, Lord, to just commune with you. I pray, Lord, that we'll be humble in your sight. We'll listen to your voice, Lord. You will reveal yourself to us as I speak. And I pray, Lord, that each person here will gain a special blessing from, um, from being here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just, as, as I mentioned, I just want to go through two examples of um, um, just short testimonies of what it's like to be a surgical trainee. Now, this is where I do most of my work, the operating theatre. And in the operating theatre, um, especially when you're a trainee, you, to be a surgical trainee, you've got to love to operate. And one of the things you love to do when you operate is to operate on your own, to have that sense of independence. Now, um, for surgical trainees, you start off first by working together with a consultant surgeon, a senior surgeon, and most of the time at the start, you're assisting him. So he would do the operation, he'd show you all the steps, and then you'd copy what he does. And then over time, when you gain more and more confidence, you get to do the operation yourself. And so instead of the surgeon doing the operation, you're doing the operation, and, and he'll assist you. And then eventually, with more confidence, he would, he would um, allow you to do the entire operation um, by yourself. He wouldn't scrub in. He might stand in the corner, and when, you're, when, when he's really happy with your abilities, then he'd just stay in the tea room, and he wouldn't even come into the operating theatre. And in my second year of training, I was up to that point. I was really um, getting more and more confident, and I was really glad that I, could do, I was confident enough to be able to do some operations. And so it came to a time when the consultant said, OK, I think you're good enough to do um, operations by yourself. And so I'll just be in the tea room. You just go ahead and go ahead and do your stuff. And I was so excited because this is the first time that the senior surgeon was not going to scrub together with me when I operated. So it was just a minor procedure. Um, I finished the operation. I thought it, I thought it went quite well. Um, patients seemed well afterwards. Um, an hour or two later, I saw him in the recovery area. He seemed fine, check his wound. Just a day case, he was fine to go home. Now, later on that evening, I was on call. And when you're on call, people come through the emergency department, you get phone calls from the emergency department team, and they get you to come to review patients. Now, um, I got a particular call at about um, 7 o'clock that night. And the, um, the um, emergency physician on the other end of the phone um, he said, there's a patient I'd like you to see. And for those of you who are medical professionals, there are three words that you really dread hearing. 
And so that's the why my title was called Three Dreaded Words. Now, these three dreaded words are kind of borrowed from another talk that I, that I heard. But, but when I heard this talk, it really rang true. So the emergency physician was on the other end of the phone, and he said the three dreaded words that um, doctors don't like to hear. Those three words are, do you remember? So for those of you in the audience, you're probably laughing because you might know what this means. So the emergency physician was on the other phone. He said, you know, I've got, I've got, got this 30-year-old man who came in. Do you remember that you operated on him earlier today? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and that usually means that something's gone wrong if he's come back. And, in sure, and, and for sure, something actually did. He came back with um, swelling over his wound, a lot of bruising around that area, and basically he had a post-operative hematoma. I came down to see him. Indeed, he had all that swelling, and it was just a vessel or something that I didn't tie off or something that I didn't diathermy properly. And indeed, he had a very large hematoma and a lot of pain, you know. And for me, as a, as a as surgical trainee, I was like, oh, my first operation, first complication, that's one out of one, you know. <laughs> um, and it was really disappointing. And, but even worse for the patient, he was in a lot of pain. He said, how did this happen? You know, and all I could do was, you know, um, apologise and to treat, treat him the way it is. Thankfully, he didn't need a second operation. But it gave me that reminder, you know, the, when you hear those words, do you remember, it gives you that sense that, you know, what you've done, the operation that I've done has unfortunately led to a problem, a complication, something that shouldn't have, shouldn't have happened. It made him worse rather than better. Now, I want to go through a second example of um, also happened during my second year of training. And for those of you who know what this is, this is actually a gastroscopy. Now, um, as we go, go through training, um, the, you need to do a certain number of procedures and the um, College of Surgeons get you to do a minimum number of procedures before you become um, proficient at it. And for gastroscopies, which is when you have a flexible telescope, which you use to look um, when the patient is asleep, of course, you look down the esophagus and the stomach and the first, second, part of the first, second and third part of the duodenum to examine if there's any um, pathology there. Um, and so with uh, gastroscopies, you need, you need to do a minimum of 200 of them, and then the college would deem you proficient to do gastroscopies on your own. Now with, um, now with um, gastroscopies, I was really excited because I really wanted to get my numbers up, and I wanted to do as many as I could because, um, you know, the more that you do, the, the hopefully then the better I'll get at it and the more I can tick off that box on my thing. So it was a Friday morning, and a 60-year-old lady came in with some vomiting. Now, she had a uh, past medical history of renal failure. She had a little bit of abdominal pain. You know, I did a plain film, couldn't obviously see a small bowel obstruction. So I talked to my consultant surgeon who was on during the day and I said, you know, this, this patient's coming with vomiting. I think she needs a gastroscopy. Um, we had a gastroscopy list this afternoon. We had another, we had an, another space um, right at the end of it. And I thought it'd be perfect. You know, we can get this lady in, um, do the procedure for her and, you know, and hopefully find out what's wrong and get her home. And I thought, you know, it'd be great, I could add another number to my, you know, to my list. So I thought, you know, it'd be really good. And this lady, you know, I can add her on. Um, so indeed, we got everything organised. The consultant heard the story and thought, you know, yep, sure, we'll go ahead and do that. And so indeed, we, we went through our, morning, our, our afternoon list. We added this lady on. Um, she was given her sedation. And then I was, you know, then I went ahead and did the gastroscopy. Now, um, as I was going down, um, unusually, um, I found a lot of fluid within the stomach. Now, it's not usual you see that. Normally, patients are fasted, and you don't normally see all this, all this fluid in the stomach, particularly green-coloured fluid. And I thought, it's a bit unusual. It's got a lot of fluid there, so I just sucked as much as I could out, had a look around, took some biopsies as we, as we do by standard, and then finished the procedure. 
And then at the end of the procedure, the um, um, few minutes afterwards, I was writing my notes. The anesthetist was saying, oh, this poor lady, she's got a bit of coughing, you know. It doesn't look quite right. And I just, I just told her, oh, no, she'll be fine. Gastroscopy all went well. No problems there, you know. Um, she'll be right. And then, you know, a few hours later, I um, came back to see her again. And indeed, she did have a bit of coughing. She was short of breath. She didn't seem quite well. But, you know, it was a pretty low morbid procedure. It was just a gastroscopy, you know, didn't see too much. So, you know, so then um, I thought she should be right. I thought I'd better do a chest X-ray just in case, make sure there's nothing bad going on in there. You know, did a chest X-ray, a little bit of pulmonary infiltrates, nothing too major. So I thought, you know, she should be fine. Um, so, you know, I, I, it was Friday um, afternoon. I was going away for the weekend. I handed over to the um, weekend team and then I left. Then it came back to Monday. So Monday, started, started work one once again. And the um, weekend surgical registrar comes up to me and he tells me those three dreaded words. He said, do you remember the lady you did the gastroscopy on, on Friday? And I said, yes, I remember her. Once again, that feeling in your heart, oh no, something's gone wrong, you know. And he told me, that lady died. I was like, what? How did you pass away? I mean, I just did a gastroscopy on her. It was nothing major. And she said, yep, I got a, um, there was a met call on the ward on Friday evening. I rushed to see the patient. She was really in a lot of respiratory distress. We, we tried, tried to get as much oxygen into her. We intubated her. She went to intensive care. And 24 hours later, despite all efforts from all the doctors, she died. And I was like, how did she possibly die? What happened? And they said, we repeated the chest x-ray and she had lots and lots of pulmonary in infiltrates. Basically, she aspirated. And then because, you know, she was unwell, she died. I couldn't believe it. It's the first time that I, had, that I did a procedure and a patient died afterwards. Um, when I reviewed back on what happened, I re-looked through and I thought about um, the, the case and what happened. Re-looked at the x-rays before. Basically, this lady had a small bowel obstruction. When I really looked at the, at the abdominal x-ray, she had a small bowel obstruction and she was basically aspirating from that. And then after I did the gastroscopy with, um, uh, with the sedation, she just aspirated further fluid, actually. And then, and then you know, she aspirated so much that, you know, that her lungs couldn't handle it with all the fluid and the chemical pneumonitis and she died. When I think back at these two stories and when I think about the feeling that I felt right after those, you not only have that really sinking feeling that, you know, that something you've done has unfortunately hurt another patient, but it really um, impacts you as a doctor and as a medical professional. That a decision that you've made despite all of your rigorous training, despite the trust that patients put in you, you have still made a medical error. I freely admit that I probably rushed into doing a procedure on this lady and on the other chap I wasn't meticulous enough in my um, in my hemostasis both these patients had major com had had complications the second one a major complication and you know you go through you know six 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 years of medical school you memorize anatomy physiology pathology histopathy do everything you possibly can so then you become the best person you can to make the right decisions all the time to, to institute the best management plan and hopefully have never medical and no medical errors that's your aim and so I thought, you know, I've got to study harder, I've got to work harder, I've got to make sure that I am more meticulous with my um, history and, and, and uh, my investigations and try not at all to make any errors because I don't want another person to die. It's completely my fault and I don't want to go through that feeling again. And worst of all, I don't want anyone, any single person or their family to go through these errors once again. 
But despite your best efforts as a medical professional, despite your best, best efforts as a, um, as a doctor, unfortunately, you're going to make another error again. And how are you going to deal with that? How are each one of us going to deal with that? And sure, since then, I've had problems. And it's a real hit to your confidence because you try your best and despite that, still, things can go wrong. And so I just want to change tax a little bit and talk a little bit about ego. Now, particularly as, as, as a surgical trainee, you have to have a bit of confidence in what you do. But that confidence can sometimes be a little bit misplaced and you can, you know, develop your ego a little bit. And ego is um, a little bit of a byproduct of what we call the, the hierarchy. There's a bit of a medical hierarchy, and in surgery in particular, the hierarchy is particularly pronounced. At the top of the chain, you've got the boss, which is the consultant surgeon, and the boss um, would make um, you know, the final decisions, I guess, on patient's management. Below the boss, you've got the managers, which are basically the surgical um, uh, registrars and residents and people at my level, who would um, attend to the everyday day of the patients, formulate the management pl plans, discuss them with the consultants above, and then institute those plans. Then below that, you have workers. We won't call them workers per se, but these are people who help to execute those plans. So a lot of the allied health, nursing staff. And somewhere below here, you've got the patients <laughs> who, um, who, who willingly and always follow whatever management plan that you give them. Right? So this is the uh, so-called medical hierarchy. And a lot of the times, particularly in surgery, we institute exactly this, this um, hierarchy, where um, me as the registrar, I'd institute a management plan, consult with the boss and then give the information and it all flow down. So the boss says, this patient needs um, DVT prophylaxis, chart, you know, 40 milligrams of Clexane. He would say that, I'd tell the residents, chart it on the chart, the residents would chart it on the chart, the nurses would give, give the medication and the patients would willingly accept the management plan they give them. So the surgical hierarchy. Now this surgical hierarchy, um, particularly when you get higher and higher up the chain, it really builds your ego because it's like whatever I say is right. Whatever I say happens, you know? And that's indeed what happens a lot. I'm on the ward round, I said, this patient needs some antibiotics. Bam, antibiotics given. Oh, this patient needs, um, you know, some, so some chest physiotherapy to help them with their recovery. Bam, they get chest, chest, chest physiotherapy. And this is particularly pronounced in the operating theatre because as the operating surgeon, you get whatever you want to make sure that you do the right operation. I need a scalpel. Bam, scalpel. I need an artery forcep. Artery forcep. I need my mouth props. Bam, you know, you know, mop my brow. Now, you know. <laughs> He gets, he gets mopped. And, and this is why the, um, the, the surgical, um, I guess, um, the, the, the caricature gets, gets brought out. You know, surgeons are very demanding. They want this, they want that, you know. If they don't get it, they get angry, upset, you know, stamp their feet, that kind of thing. That's because the surgical hierarchy helps to build that ego, you know, that what you want, you get, for the benefit of the patients, of course, you know. But of course it has an impact on you because you become more and more demanding, more and more selfish. And I've noticed this happens to me quite often. And sometimes it spills over to home. Sometimes I, I tell my wife, oh, I need, I, need, I need a drink. And she's like, I'm not your scrub nurse. You get your drink yourself, you know? <laughs> and that does happen from time to time. But um, you've got to be, be careful though, because particularly as Christians, as your ego is built, as the more and more self-centered you get, the further and further you are away from the Christian model. The higher you go up the ladder, the more and more farther your way are from what God wants, from where God wants you to be. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. The Bible gives us warnings about self. Okay? These warnings 
um, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, let him that think he standeth take heed, lest he falls. I think I stand, you know. Particularly as a, as, as a surgical trainee, I think I'm standing. You know, I'm standing on two feet. I'm doing my own operations. I'm instituting my own management plans. I'm thinking that I'm standing. But take heed, the Bible warns, because you may fall. And the higher and higher you climb up the ladder, the higher and higher you're giving more and more of the management plans and the information, the more and more actually you can be feeding yourself. Feeding your ego, feeding yourself. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, this is a very classic example of um, one of the angels in heaven who fed self. He climbed and climbed this, you know, this so-called ladder of heaven. And this is his attitude. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, higher and higher. He built up his ego, higher and higher. He wanted to do more, to be more. And little and little did he know it. Pride set in his heart. And indeed, he wanted to be like God or higher than God. And as doctors, we have to be, as medical officials, we have to be really careful. They talk about the God complex that doctors have. And that God complex is fed simply by this I, I, I. I want this management. I want this. I want that. If you don't follow what I say, you're going to get sick. I, I, I. The Bible warns us in the very next um, Bible verse, Isaiah 14, verse 15, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The more I we have in our heart, the more pride we have in our heart, the more likely we're going to fall. And when we fall, what a dramatic fall that's going to be. And when we fall, it can not only be yourself and your pride that falls, but you can drastically affect other people. Patience, hematoma, <laughs> death. These things can happen just because of your pride. If you just rush in, let's go ahead and do this laparotomy. Is it really the right for, for the patient? You know, I can save you. Can you really save this patient? Let's look at the model that Jesus gives. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Jesus takes the whole worldly model and he turns it upside down. Instead of wanting to be the highest, Jesus came down to this earth to be the lowest. Instead of wanting, wanting to be the one that calls the shots, he's the one who listens to others. Instead of being the one who um, is the one who's in charge and in control, he's the one who's really in charge and in control, but does that in such a gentle and humble way that he works together with people, together with the patients, together with the disciples, together with his workers, in order to achieve exactly the same result but in a much better way. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, whom, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and found himself in fashion as a man. He, became hum he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Jesus, instead of becoming I, I, higher, 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 Jesus does the exact opposite. He goes, humble, humble, lower, 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 lower. And Jesus gives us the best example of what it's like to be a health professional. And that is someone who is so humble, who stoops so low, he can connect with even the lowest in society. 
He can work together with them it's for anyone that he meets, humble, working closely with himself um, and others, and God, importantly, so that he can give the best plans together, together um, for the patients. Turn ourselves, let's turn the Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 10. The Bible says here, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. If you want to be the type of health professional who is lifted up, who people say, you know, that's something different about this person, this man or this woman, this nurse or this, uh, this uh, dentist or this physiotherapist or this doctor. If you want to say there's something different about this person, you need to humble yourself. Not only humble yourself during the ward round, but humble yourself, this Bible verse says, in the sight of the Lord. If there's no one else around in the morning during your devotions, in the evening time before you go to bed, if you are humbling yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. It's, it's quite interesting. When I um, pray and do my devotions in the morning, I've noticed recently, you know, I usually ask God for a lot. You know, Lord, please give me wisdom today. I've got a difficult operation. Or please give me wisdom during the ward round. Please help me to deal with the patients today. Please, Lord, give me strength because I need strength to carry through this, um, um, the day that I have ahead. But I find that even those prayers, if you, if you think about it, even they're selfish, aren't they? Lord, please give me this. I need wisdom. Lord, please give me strength. I need strength. Lord, please keep my hands steady. You know, please help me tie better. You know, once again, they're actually selfish prayers. We need to think about ourselves in terms of humility at every stage, whether we're on a ward round, whether we're in the clinic, whether we're operating, even, uh, but even when we're at home. It doesn't matter whether you're a health professional or not. Even if you're a Christian, we need to be humble. And humility begins when you are by yourself with the Lord. No one else around. The Bible says, yeah, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. No matter where we are, no matter what we do, but it begins when we are alone with the Lord. Let's turn our Bibles to our last Bible verse for today. 1 John 4 verse 15. 1 John 4 verse 15. The Bible says here, 1 John 4 verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. The Bible says here, if we shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God will dwell in us and he in God. If we want to be the type of Christian, type of health professional that's working together with God, where God is working together with you, guiding you, helping you with your management plans, helping you with wisdom, helping you make the right decisions, letting you show compassion and love to the patients, to the people that we treat. If you want to be that type of person, the Bible says here, we need to confess. Whosoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God will dwell with him. We need to confess. So we here have three dreaded words. Three dreaded words that any Christian or any health professional sometimes dread to say. Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Not please give me this, not please give me that. Jesus, please forgive me. If we begin with this in our devotions, if we begin with this when we, in our prayers, if we begin with this in our everyday lives, God will recognize that you are being humble in the sight of the Lord. And indeed you are. If you can ask God for forgiveness for the things that you do in your life, then you are showing the first step to humility. 
And the Bible says here, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. If you confess that Jesus, um, if you um, confess that Jesus is the son of God, God will dwell with you. Three dreaded words that every Christian sometimes dreads to say because your pride and your ego gets in the way. But these three dreaded words, please forgive me, are able to save you. Hopefully you'll let me finish with just one last story. I've got a couple of minutes. Pretty done. All right. Maybe I'll tell you this story over, over, um, over breakfast. But if you are able to say, please forgive me, I'm sure that it will help you and further your work and further you as a Christian so that we can do what God calls us to do, which is to care and to love for the people he's putting, put um, in our lives. Thank you very much. Let's start off with this. Close off with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we'd just like to thank you, Lord, that, we have this, um, that I have the ability to share this message. But importantly, Lord, we pray that each one of us will humble ourselves in your sight. I pray that each one of us, Lord, will be able to put self aside, put our pride aside and say to um, you each day, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me for putting self in front of me. Please forgive me, Lord, for um, the errors that I make. Please, Lord, may you dwell in my heart that I may do what you've truly called me to do, Lord. Please forgive each one of us. Just like to give this time a few minutes, Lord, for each one of us to contemplate on this message and pray, Lord, that you will indeed forgive us. Thank you, dear Lord, for your mercy, your love and your grace. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.